If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrave, editor of BBC History Magazine. Welcome to our new weekly podcast. You're listening to July 2011, part three. BBC History Magazine is, of course, Britain's best-selling history magazine, on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or follow us at twitter.com forward slash BBC History Mag or facebook.com BBC History Magazine. Coming up this week, we have a tale of two Henrys. In terms of setting the tone and to some extent the agenda for the Tudors who came after him, uh, I think his achievements are very substantial. That was Stephen Gunn on King Henry VII. Wherever I go, I have to start off by saying, who was Henry III? And I often used to play, often place him by saying, well, he's the son of King John, because everyone's heard of King John. And that was David Carpenter on King Henry III. So the first interview is with Oxford University's Dr Stephen Gunn. He's going to be telling us all about the reign of Henry VII, who was of course the founder of the Tudor dynasty. The August issue of the magazine is a Tudor special where I've invited five historians to argue it out about who was the most important Tudor monarch. And over the course of the next five weeks of the podcast, you're going to be hearing my interviews with each of the experts in turn. If you like your Tudor history, you're not alone, and you'll be pleased to know that we've produced a special BBC History magazine Tudor's audiobook, where you can get the full-length interviews that I recorded with all the experts. So you get half an hour each on Kings Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI, and Queens Mary and Elizabeth. We're charging just £1.99 for this, and you can download it via our website at www.historyextra.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash Tudors. Anyway, on with the interview. You're, you're giving an impression of, of Henry as a, a man certainly with a sensitive side. Mm-hmm. What else do you feel about Henry's character? What sort of a man was he from, from your research into his life? It's quite hard to get at Henry's character in some ways, partly because he deliberately played his cards very close to his chest. I think having been in exile from the time he was a, a young teenager, uh, and indeed for half his life before he became king, he was very good at not letting people know exactly what he was thinking. Um, it's made worse by the fact that much of the description of Henry, much of the more uh, detailed account of what was happening in his reign, actually comes from the last years of the reign, where uh, he's clearly very personally um, troubled. He, he's, he's lost his eldest son, uh, he's lost his wife, uh, he's worried about whether he can survive long enough because he is regularly ill, uh, whether he can survive long enough to get his teenage son, Henry VIII, who is uh, not yet 18 at the point where Henry VII dies, whether he can get him old enough to succeed uh, as a credibly adult ruler. Mm. Um, And so it's not surprising that people talk about him often dressing in black and being rather quiet uh, and and indeed being rather withdrawn. Um, 
it's harder to tell what he was like earlier in his reign, but certainly if you look at account books, which is more or less all we have, and even those in nothing like so much uh, detail as they survive from later in the reign, you can see he buys a lot of very brightly coloured clothes um, and very rich clothes, a lot of cloth of gold uh, and so on, so he knows how to be a magnificent king. Um, he plays tennis, uh, he gambles quite a lot, he shoots crossbows and longbows, um, he is a very, very keen hunter, which he carries on being right through the reign. Um, so clearly he knew how to enjoy himself uh, as well, but he, he's still quite an austere figure. And when people praise him, they tend to praise him for his wisdom and uh, his uh, ability to foresee what difficulties were going to come along and provide against them and so on. There's not quite the sense of warmth for him that... Um, that you might look for in somebody who uh, w was easier to get along with. Right. There's a very striking moment in the funeral sermon that John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester, preaches for Henry, uh, where uh, he begins with a great oration about Henry's wisdom and his success in all sorts of different areas of government uh, and so on. And he goes on to talk about Henry's moral seriousness and the way in which he bewailed his sins on his deathbed and so on. But he does say at one point, ah, King Henry, King Henry, if thou wert alive, how many that are now here present would pretend full great pity upon thee? And that pretend uh, it just probably doesn't mean quite the same as it means now, but it still implies uh, that there are a lot of people who are not quite as sorry as they might be that Henry was dead, mm. uh, and, uh, but who um, were concerned enough to stay on the right side of him while he was still alive that they would have given the impression they might be quite sorry when he was dead. Okay. I'll just take you back to a, a couple of those points. Um, the, the first thing I was wondering about was the, the, the question of the, of the union of the, of the Roses faction, which... Um, Today we, we we see as, as incredibly important, and we you know historically we think well that's that's a key moment. Then was it at the time was it really that significant to people say oh thank you know thank God he's managed to bring those two sides together by by, by that marriage union. I think it's significant in the short term because so many of the uh, supporters of Henry the Seventh who put him on the throne who've been on, in exile with him in Brittany and, and in France they're people who have been very close servants of Edward the Fourth who rebel against. Richard III because they're so outraged at Richard III's taking the throne away from Edward IV's son, Edward V. Uh, and so for them, the idea that Edward IV's daughter, Elizabeth of York, will reign together with Henry uh, in uh, a marriage which he swears before them in, in, in the cathedral in Brittany that he will undertake if they put him on the throne. Mm. That becomes very important, that Henry is not just uh, the best Lancastrian candidate for the throne, which he is, but by this stage, because of deaths amongst the uh, Lancastrian royal family, he's not a terribly convincing Lancastrian candidate. His Lancastrian blood is um, illegitimate blood. He's descended not from uh, Edward III's first son, the Black Prince, or from his second son, Lionel Duke of Clarence, but from his third son, John of Gaunt, and not by a legitimate line, but through John of Gaunt's mistress, the the Beaufort family who are subsequently made legitimate, uh, but it's quite a shaky Lancastrian claim. Yeah. But putting that best you can get under the circumstances Lancastrian claim together with Elizabeth of York's much stronger Yorkist claim, that does make quite a viable claim to the throne. Now, of course, it may be that for many people, really what they wanted was just a king who was more or less acceptable in, in dynastic terms. You could 
reasonably believed they had a right to be king, but who was an effective king and was accepted by everybody as king. Um, and people don't yet talk in late 15th century England about the state. The, the term the state comes in in the late 16th century, but they do already talk about the crown of England uh, and they talk a lot about the common weal, the commonwealth, the common mm. good. So there is a sense that you might put your loyalty in the crown and in a king who can pursue the common weal, the common good, and you're not too bothered about exactly what his, uh, his genes are. Yeah. Um, and that probably helps Henry. So in that sense, it, the exact lines of legitimacy don't matter too much. On the other hand, they probably do matter to people, or they're thought to matter to people in the sense that the Tudors make great play with the Tudor rose as a badge. Mm. Um, they don't, interestingly, nobody calls it the Tudor rose at the time. They but they do talk about the red rose and the white, and they use it uh, uh, both in pageantry. Um, so when uh, Henry goes to York in his first progress just after winning Bosworth, uh, there's a little play put on with a mechanical red rose and a white rose which intertwine with each other. Oh, really? um, by the time of the, uh, the 1492 war against France, um, things being printed on the king's behalf like the ordinances of war, the regulations for how the armies to behave, they have uh, the Tudor rose, uh, red and white rose, very prominently uh, printed on them. We know it's the Tudor rose because uh, there are instructions for somebody who wants to get a copy of it decorated for one of his friends and he explains that the rose is to be painted partly red and partly white um, in the way that we're now familiar yeah. with. Um, and by the time that Prince Arthur marries Catherine of Aragon in 1501, the streets of London are covered with uh, painted and carved Tudor roses mm. uh, of all sorts. So the fact that that becomes the big visual calling card of the family suggests that they think the union of the roses is a is a strong argument. So they didn't call it the Tudor rose. Did, the, what, did, did it have a name, or was it? Uh, it? It doesn't really have a name. I think heraldically, they it's now called the Union Rose. Whether they call it the Union Rose at the time, I'm not sure. Uh, but they do talk a lot about. The roses, the rose, both red and white. There's a song that's sung at the start of Henry VIII's reign uh, in a piece of court pageantry, which goes something like, "The rose, both red and white, in one rose now doth grow." Uh, so the idea of the two coming together. Uh, yeah. that, that seems to be quite important to them. And Henry VII uh, uses the red rose as his own personal badge. Right. So he's m making a claim there to be something different from the White Rose of York. The Lancastrians hadn't used the Red Rose much before then. Um, so somebody clearly comes up with the idea that here's a very powerful branding idea. You can put these two together and say those troubles between the Red and the White Rose are all over now because we've got the two roses together. They, they hardly ever use the word Tudor either. Mm, partly because, well that's almost slightly embarrassing because what it points out is the rather lowly Welsh uh, side of Henry's ancestor, ancestry. Yeah. So when uh, Richard III wants to denounce him as a rival, he, he calls him Henry Tidder, uh, which is clearly meant to, 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 to point to the fact that he's got this uh, embarrassing Welsh grandfather. Um, so uh, they don't make much play with that. Right. What would you say were the main achievements of, of Henry's reign? I think the main achievement of Henry's reign is stability. Mm. And some people would question that by saying that his approach to stability, which is actually just to keep a very tight grip on everybody, is itself a destabilizing approach. That if you had a king who was more relaxed, who was able to give his trust to people 
more confidently, who was more prepared to say, clearly a great nobleman whose family have always been important in an area is the natural person to look after that area for me, so I'll just let things roll, and if there are difficulties, I can intervene, but if not, I won't. That's not Henry's style. Uh, it's not Henry's style partly because he spent half his life in exile and he certainly doesn't want to get sent into exile again. It's not his style because his personality is clearly uh, quite bent on detail and management and control and that's just the kind of person he is. It's also not his style because the people in whom he puts his confidence increasingly are uh, not people from... Um, the great noble families of the past, although noblemen who are prepared to serve him, he's very happy to use and put trust in. So he's not an anti-noble king in that sense. But the people he seems to get along with and think along the same lines as are lawyers, financial administrators, um, people as the reign come to, comes to its end, like Edmund Dudley, uh, who is uh, the lawyer who um, writes in the Tower of London under Henry VIII when he's just been arrested at the end of Henry VII's reign, a book on how to govern England. Um, but just before that, his accounts survive and you can see that he's um, discussing with Henry VII what the rights of the crown are. There's a great book called Eura Regalia, The Rights of the Crown, which he borrows from the king and then gives back. So there's a sense that there's a, there's a discussion about um, what power is and how you use it and how you use it best to keep England under control going on between Henry uh, and the people closest to him. And in some ways, that's a, a rather unlovely way to govern and clearly some of the noblemen at court think it's a very unlovely way to govern uh, and they don't get along at all well with the people closest to to Henry. Yeah. Um, interestingly, many of them don't really have the chance to say that while Henry's still alive and they then do say it when uh, Henry's dead and Henry VIII seems to be much more sympathetic to uh, their concerns. So if I asked you to uh, summarise an assessment of his legacy, what would you say? How, how, would, how, would, you, how would you talk about the, the, the impact of his reign? I think Henry builds the platform that all the things achieved by the later Tudors rest on. So not only is his style of kingship something which sets a lot of the tone for later Tudor kingship, the idea that uh, you should be magnificent as a king and that that's a way of persuading your subjects that you're a great king who's doing a great job, that's not brand new, but Henry does it in a very serious way, builds palaces like Richmond and Greenwich, which will be important uh, sites for later Tudor monarchs to, to, to live in. Um, the use of um, royal ministers who have meritocratic skills, if you like, lawyers, financial administrators who are from uh, humbler social backgrounds than royal ministers had often been in the past, certainly than lay royal ministers, people who hadn't risen through the church had been in the past. That again sets a pattern that later Tudor rulers will use. Um, uh, the taking of power over the church, although Henry doesn't do it in the same uh, um, totalizing way that Henry VIII does, uh, that's still something that's very important both to Henry and to the lawyers around him who are very keen to assert common law jurisdiction against the jurisdiction of the church courts. Uh, and similarly, the ability to project power into uh, Europe, particularly by developing the navy, that's something which Henry uh, gives a big push to and which carries on developing later on. Um, the Tudor Rose we've already talked about, but the fact that the Tudor Rose and the Beaufort Portcullis survive as two of the really significant badges of Tudor monarchy, that again suggests that Henry VII has set them on a particular path which they then carry on following. Um, 
So I think it's hard to say that there are single enormous achievements that you can point to in Henry VII's reign. But uh, in terms of setting the tone and to some extent the agenda for the Tudors who came after him, uh, I think his achievements are very substantial. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Oxford University's Dr. Stephen Gunn talking about Henry VII. Stephen has published a number of studies of the councillors and courtiers of Henry VII and he's completing a book on the subject. He's also principal investigator of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council on accidental death and everyday life in 16th century England, which we hope to feature in the pages of BBC History magazine at some point soon. If you want to hear more from Stephen and our other Tudor experts, the link for the special audiobook that I mentioned before is historyextra.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash Tudors, and it's being distributed by audiogo.co.uk. The second interview this week is with Professor David Carpenter of King's College London. He's Professor of Medieval History there and also the director of the AHRC-funded Henry III Fine Rolls Project. Henry III was King of England from 1216 to 1272, and the fine rolls are, as David explains, an excellent way to get an insight into this long and important medieval reign. I met up with him on the occasion of the End of Project conference and asked him to tell me more about Henry III and his fine rolls. So the first question, really, um, is a simple question. What's a fine roll? And indeed, what's a fine? And indeed, who is Henry III? Yes, indeed. Three difficult questions. Well, uh, fines actually are not at all what they are today. Um, Today it's a sort of penalty, isn't it, imposed for a misdemeanour. Whereas in the medieval period, a fine was essentially an offer of money to the king for a concession from him or a favour. Right. And the fine rolls are simply the rolls on which all these offers of money to the king are recorded. Okay. And I suppose because fines, I mean, the king has so much to give that the fine rolls really do reflect what people wanted from the king and also what he was demanding of you. And so they, they, they have a wonderful window into the government kingship society of the medieval period. So they're a key source? Absolutely key source, particularly the fine rolls of Henry III, because this is a key period between this... His reign is a key period, 1216, 1272. Mm. A long reign, isn't it? A long reign mm. between, on the one hand, the establishment of Magna Carta at the beginning, and on the other, the uh, beginnings of the parliamentary tax-based state at the end. And in a way, the fine rolls, more than any other document, it helps to explain that transition. Just to be clear, the, the fine rolls, they're not exclusive to Henry III, they, they started before yeah, him and they, they well, carry on they, off. They, start, they first survived from the beginning of John's reign in 1199, but probably they go back much earlier. And golly, I don't know how long they go on for, but certainly into the 
into the later Middle Ages and perhaps beyond. But I think the fine rules of Henry III are by far the most interesting okay. uh, because fines, there's a huge transition in the nature of fines during, during that period. They're huge, actually. I mean, they're about, that, um, one particular fine role for Henry's reign, there's one for every regnal year, mm-hmm. so they run from October to October, and they can have 30,000, 40,000 words on them. And for the reign as a whole, there are nearly two million words on, on the fine rolls. So let's talk about the, the physicality of them. Sure. They're actually big pieces of parchment. Yeah, no, they are amazing pieces of parchment, all treasured up in the National Archives at, at Kew. And they sort of look like, sort of about, say, a foot by... They divided into membranes, and each membrane, of course, it were all written in Latin on sheepskin, vellum, and they're divided up into membranes, and one membrane might be a foot wide and three feet long, and then they're all sewn together. And so one roll might have about 30 membranes like that. And if you unroll them, they're amazing things. You need a corridor mm. to unroll them all. So that's, that's the problem with them. That's the nice, nice thing about them. They're such amazing things, but the problem with them is they're quite hard to access, which is why you've been doing this project. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The Henry III Fine Rules Project, its aim is to unlock the treasures of this material and make them available really to everybody. And so what the project's done, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, is to translate all these roles into English and put this English translation up onto the... to make the freely available on the project's website, which is www.finerollshenry3.org.uk. So go and have a look. OK, so you, you, you go to this website and you can see... You can, you can see some actual um, physical expressions of the fine. You can see pictures of, of, of yeah, some of them. Yeah, no, there's both the translation, and then you can click from the translation of each membrane to the actual image of the membrane. So you can actually see physically what it looks like too. And, and that's the unique thing about the project. You've got the translation on the one hand and the image on the other. So if I'm not an academic historian... Why should I go to your website? What, what would I find that would interest me if I'm not sort of actively trying to research the history of Henry III? Well, I think you'll find a tremendous amount about places. Mm. So if you're interested in the, the place you live, the village you live, the town, if you simply put into the search facility, and it's all electronic, you can search it, if you put in, say, Bloxham in Oxfordshire, or if you put in Lewisham in Kent, mm. and you put it into the search facility, you'll find all sorts of references to your village. And you might find, for example, the peasants of the village offering money to the king for protection against their lord, or to have a charter of privileges. Uh, the fine rolls have got a huge amount about the struggle of villagers against their lords. So, you know, the villages of Brampton in Huntingdonshire, Rothley in Leicestershire. And I think that's one of the key and most exciting things which anybody can do. They can find out about the place they live from the fine rolls and see what's going on there in the uh, the 13th century to to understand the aspirations of of the people living there who will be offering money to the king for concessions and favours. Or perhaps the lord of the place may be offering money, say to set up a market and fair or to have a private hunting preserve. All those sorts of things will be on on the fine rolls. Okay. And for an academic historian... Presumably it's, it's an even greater treasure. What, what, what sort of themes have been coming out for you and, and your colleagues? Two major themes. Um, the first is the huge expansion of the common law. I mean, this is the period in which the common law really gets going. And that's shown on the fine rolls because more and more people are offering money to the king to begin legal actions 
uh, further legal actions according to all these wonderful new processes of the common law. So, you know, the, the law, which still in a way we, we have a writ-based driven law, is coming into place in the 13th century, and we can see that in the finals. That's one thing. The other theme, actually, is the gigantic decline in the amount of money from fines. Mm. Because in John's reign, John charged huge amounts for um, people to be restored to his favour, for people to inherit land, thousands and thousands of pounds sometimes, whereas Henry III, never able to do that. And the reason is Magna Carta. So the fine rolls are a tremendous indication of the post-Magna Carta state in which the power and the minatory threatening power of kingship has been greatly reduced by the Charter. And I, I think that's one of the key things which has emerged from the actual analysis of the rolls. So Henry's, Henry III's hands were, were tied because Magna Carta had exactly. been, been sealed by his predecessor John in right. Henry III just can't get away with what his father, King John, got away with. And it's the fine rolls which show that. Yeah. Um, plus, I should say that we've made a terrific effort in the project to sort of make, get these themes across because the website's not merely got the actual text of the rolls but it's all, and the images, but it's also got a lot of comment and one thing we're particularly proud of is the Fine of the Month feature, Indeed, yeah. in which every month a member of the project team or someone outside the project has commented on material on the rolls. And they started in December 2005. There are now 66 of them. I'm afraid we haven't done one for June yet, but it's going to be about Henry III's sense of humour. And anyone outside the project is encouraged to send one in. And in fact, the fine month last year, which won the fine of the year prize, was done by the villagers of Nunny in Somerset, who simply found on the fine rolls the date of the very first market charter which Nunny had. So you, Dave, you must have a look and see if you can contribute a a fine month, or get all your team at the BBC History magazine <laughs> to compulsorily contribute a fine of the month. It's quite a challenge, and uh, maybe I'll take it up. But let, let's just go back to, um, you mentioned Henry III, and you mentioned Henry III's sense of humour just yeah. then as, as possibly the fine of the month. So can you learn a lot about Henry III himself? From, yeah, I think you these, can. I think you can learn a great deal about the personality of the king, because these fine rules, although they're becoming increasingly governmental and bureaucratic, are still very, very personal to the king. And I mean, just take the example of the sense of humour, which, um, which we know from the fine rolls. And this is in Henry III's ship, who went coming back from uh, expedition to Gascony mm. in 1243. And um, he actually records a joke or a tease on the fine rolls. And what the fine roll entry says is Henry III having a joke against his, or with his clerk, Peter the Poitevin, ordered all these extraordinary debts which Peter the Poitevin had incurred to be written down on the fine rolls. So it says, Peter the Poitevin has, has owes the king 100 marks for um, a foolish remark he made on the ship. Um, Peter the Poitevin owes the king uh, 20 chickens because he missold some of the king's wines. And this great list of uh, hilarious, jocular penalties, fines, which Peter the Poitevin has incurred, are sort of written down. And then what it says is, um, when Peter the Poitevin is not looking, cross them all out, because Henry didn't want him to get into trouble. Because clearly the idea was that Peter the Poitevin would sort of look at the fine and think, oh my God, what's going on? Why on, how on earth am I incurred all these penalties? And everyone will stand around sort of laughing 
at him when he sees this. So that's the sort of slightly genteel sense of humour. John's sense of humour was far more unpleasant in a way, and you, that's also on the fine rolls, because it's on the fine rolls that you get the extraordinary fine in which the wife of Hugh de Neville offers King John 200 chickens so she can sleep one night with her husband. And it's very hard to interpret, but I think what it must be is that the wife of Hugh de Neville is John's mistress, and John and she are sort of having a joke together and saying, what's it worth to spend one night back with Hugh, your husband? And so she says a rather ridiculous thing, well, I'll give you 200 chickens. And John has this recorded on the, on the fine rolls. No wonder Hugh de Neville later rebelled against him. <laughs> so it's funny, isn't it? You can, you, can, you can see the character of these kings coming through. You can. These, these otherwise perhaps fairly dry documents you would have fought. Oh yes, you can. You can see the king's anger. I mean, I, Henry III often seems very benign, but you can get quite brutal fines when people are, even under Henry III, having to offer large sums of money to recover the king's favour. Um, there's one from John de Balliol in 1257 in which he offers £500 that the king should uh, forgive the rancour he had towards him for mistreating Henry's daughter, who was the uh, queen, queen of Scotland, th things like that. So it shows both the king's anger, his sense of humour, um, all sorts of things like that. And Henry suffers a bit, I think, I, you may disagree, from being sandwiched between two perhaps more famous kings, John no, and, no, and, and no. Edward. And, and is this, is this going to bring him alive a bit more? I hope it will. I mean, you're quite right. Wherever I go, I have to start off by saying, who was Henry III? And I often used to play, often place him by saying, well, he's the son of King John, mm. because everyone's heard of King John. Um, I hope this will. I hope that it will make Henry emerge in all his... Benevolence, in a way, his occasional anger, his sense of humour. He was fundamentally, I think, a very pious, decent man. And, of course, what I think it will also do is more widely put Henry on the map for his greatest achievement, which was, of course, to build Westminster Abbey. And, I mean, I, I hope that the recent Royal Reading has actually put Henry back on the map a bit, because I've certainly done a lot of interviews for it, and the first thing I always say is, you know, this great church in which this Royal Wedding is taking place, in which we see so splendidly set out in the, the television pictures, why is it there? Who built it? Henry III built it. Built it entirely at his own expense, and he built it to create the most magnificent church in the world. And the fine rolls throw light on that, because Henry is often diverting money from fines to the fabric fund of Westminster Abbey. Finally, the project's coming to a close. We, you, we're having the conference now, to, which is the, 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 the closing episode. Um, is that it? You done? Well, it's not quite it, because uh, actually the conference doesn't finish, the uh, project doesn't finish till the end of the year, Indeed. but we thought this was a good time for the conference. And I think, for, I think we're going to keep the find of the month feature going sort of for as long as we can have contributions to it. So it'll go on and we'll be correcting the roles and updating them, uh, I think. Um, but it's on to the next project mm -hmm. and I hope we may be doing one, a uh, collaborative one, or I'll be involved in a collaborative one, about Magna Carta itself for the anniversary in 2015. Mm. It hasn't got funding yet, so we're waiting in bated breath to see what happens. So the website for that project once more is www.finerollshenryfree.org.uk and it's a great place to have a mooch around. 
David Carpenter mentioned the construction of Westminster Abbey as Henry III's greatest achievement, and it's no surprise to note that he nominated the Abbey in the recently published BBC History magazine book of 100 Places That Made Britain. You can read an edited version of the piece on our website at historyextra.com forward slash visit forward slash Westminster hyphen Abbey hyphen London, or buy the book from any good bookseller for the full story. Now, we'd really like to hear more from you or about what you think about the podcast. So we've got an email address that you can send in your thoughts to, and that's podcast at historyextra.com. Or you can call the voicemail number that we've set up. The number is a UK number 0117-230-2002. UK landline callers will pay local rate overseas charges, and charges from other operators may vary. I just thought I'd mention one uh, email that we've had in, uh, which is from Beatrice from Norway. And she says, I was thrilled to hear that you are now going to be weekly i think it's much better with four shorter podcasts of 30 minutes length than the one hour one once a month i really like to listen to history programs especially yours since you always have different historic subjects in each podcast so it's always something i found interesting the only suggestion i have is that you could perhaps try to have a competition and the prize should of course be some excellent bbc history magazines so thank you beatrice kind words any other suggestions about ways we could improve the podcast competition or otherwise would be most welcome so do please get in touch either by email or by our voicemail or just contact us via twitter or facebook that's it for this week just a reminder that the website for our new tudor audio book distributed by audiogo.co.uk is www.historyextra.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash Tudors a snip at just £1.99 and I should just mention that the August issue of the magazine proper which is the Tudor special is on sale in the UK on Tuesday the 19th of July next week we have Professor George Bernard on one of the big names in Tudor history King Henry VIII plus Professor Justin Champion of Royal Holloway University of London on Thomas Hobbes. I do hope you'll listen in.